0: Hi folks,
1: this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is, what day is it, it is, October the 11th, 2017. I know what weekday it is, it's a Wednesday, and I know that because it's time for an interview. And I've got a person on the line I'm really excited about bringing on for you. Uh, This is Tatiana Maruz, and Tatiana is part of the group of people that got messed up in the whole jack mess up where I had all these people that I was inviting on the show that I was really excited about several months ago, and then no one was was applying to be on the air. I mean, I I thought all of a sudden, like, the TSP Magic had died or something, and no one wanted anything to do with me. Even people I knew personally, I was like, why don't you... You fill out a form you ain't been on in a while, Jeff Lawton and stuff, and uh, no forms are coming in. And uh, if you remember back about a month ago, I, I went into like one of my special filtering folders that I hadn't checked in like over a month, and there were like 25, 30, maybe more guest survey forms sitting in there waiting on me. So now we're booked out six months. But Tatiana was one of the first of this group uh, that uh, – that, that I had asked to come on uh, and specifically to talk about cryptocurrency and really using it in their business and uh, some other really cool stuff, too. She's a very talented musician that you'll hear uh, a little example of that in just a second. and uh, finally get to have her on today, so I'm pretty excited about it. What are we going to talk about? Cryptocurrency, but a bit differently than we probably have before. We're going to talk about what it means to the world to have private currency, uh, and complete freedom in the use of currency, some of the ways that's being attacked, how she's used it in her business uh, 100% in some situations, how she continues to use it and helps other people do so, her talk show called the Tatiana Show, uh, which is mostly on things that at least revolve around the world of cryptocurrency, her work with trying to help free Ross Ulbricht, and a bunch of other really cool stuff. We'll have that all and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, JM Bullion. You know, today we're going to talk a lot about cryptocurrency. And um, in the, the, the formative years of the Survival Podcast, I talked a lot more about precious metals than I did about cryptocurrency. And the reason is pretty simple. The show's almost 10 years old, and Bitcoin really hit the scene about 8 years ago, so there wasn't really any cryptocurrency market when I started. So now that cryptocurrency's here, how do I feel about silver and gold? The same way I always have. The exact same way I always have. 5% to 10% of your net worth should be in precious metals, silver and gold. They should be held in your hand, possibly a safe deposit box, a safe, what have you, but you should be able to touch it. You should be able to touch it. It should be lasting wealth that could be hounded down in your family. It could be a lasting legacy of wealth, a wealth insurance and assurance program, and something that's between you, the people you choose to share it with, and the fence post, as we stay in Texas. You, me, and the fence post, which means there's other people that just don't need to know. And that's something that you can do with silver and gold that's hard to do with anything else, and they have a multi-thousand-year track record of being used as currency, to being used as money, and being a store of value. So nothing's changed. I just think now we have other ways to diversify. When it comes to investing in physical metal, I think one of the best places you can do that is Jam Bullion. It's why I invited them to be a sponsor with us about six years ago. And since then, they've never talked about leaving, and we've never talked about having them leave. And I've remained loyal to them, and they've remained loyal to us. Great pricing, better than some of the bigger houses like Apmex and Monex. And if there ever is a problem, I can speak to the president, Michael, directly. Check them out today at jambullion.com. Remember, if you're an MSB member, they do give you a discount. Next up, the other precious metal. In addition to silver and gold, what is it? Is it copper? Well, it's copper jacketed lead. That's ammunition. If you own a gun and you don't have ammo for it, you know what you have? You have an overpriced club. A gun without ammo is not really a gun. It's just a thing that hopes to be a, it's a potential gun. Guns actually fire ammunition. That's what they're intended to do. And whether you need ammunition to put food on the table, protect your family, uh, or to make sure that you train so that you're able to do both of those things when, when it comes down to the time to do it, you need lots of ammo, and the best place you can get it is at BulkAmmo.com. Great pricing, great avail- uh, availability, and lightning fast shipping. It'll be at your front door so fast you'll wonder how they do it. Check them out at BulkAmmo.com. And again, another company that does offer a discount to members of the MSB. Whenever you're going to do anything online, make sure that you uh, check our supporting vendors, and whenever you're going to buy from one of our sponsors, most of them do something for the MSB. On that note, uh, I just got a thing from Old Grouch on Facebook. He's got these awesome, uh, military shelters, tents, individual size, like what the individual soldier, shoulder, soldier carries today. They're, they're not carrying around those canvas shelter halves where you and your buddy make a tent out of uh, each of yours together anymore. They have a really, really good uh, tent system today. He's got them on sale on surplus for like 89 bucks. Uh, this is like a $200 tent. And yeah, the other used, but they're in really good shape. I don't even need one. I picked one up. They're so good. I just thought I'd throw this in at the beginning of the day. Because um, with the discount, yeah, it's like another 9 bucks, So it's like 80 bucks, 79 bucks or something like that, for uh, just just an incredible piece of military surplus gear. These are the currently issued um, improved combat shelters, also known as ICSs. The whole dad-gone system only weighs about 6 and a half pounds, so it's lightweight. Uh universal camo pattern uh and pack volume down to 17 inches by uh five point five inches. So compact, lightweight, uh go anywhere shelter, something you might want to take a look at. I'll have a link in the show notes. And remember, like I said, you get military or non-military, you get your uh, MSB discount another eight dollars and ninety cents off. Uh so you're looking at like nine bucks off. So you're looking at like eighty bucks for a two hundred dollar tent. Just one example of MSB paying for itself, and we'll let that be the uh, reminder about the MSB for today, and we won't talk about that no more. Uh, Next up, before we we get our special guest on, and I give you kind of a special treat uh, in regard to our special guest with a a song I know you've heard before before, but probably not heard her version of it, uh, let's take a look at the year that was from history. Uh, Today we uh, have a piece from, again, Roman history. Uh, It's called A Dangerous War Over a Disgraceful Peace from the year 63 AD, contributed by David Verne. After failing to invade Syria, the Parthian king, Volgasus, has spent the winter preparing to go all-in and invade Armenia. The Roman commander, Patius, is completely unprepared for an enemy army to arrive at the Armenian-Parthian border, where he has camped for the winter. With his troops dispersed for the winter, the most he could do was try to block the mountain passes. This only further depressed his soldiers, dispersed his soldiers, and led the Romans to becoming besieged in a series of forts. Uh, where he uh, Corbulo set out with half his army to lift the siege, but by the time he arrived, Padius had agreed to a humiliating surrender. The terms included all Romans leaving Armenia, all Roman weapons and armor given to Parthia, building a permanent bridge over the river between Armenia and Parthia, and marching under the yoke. Both sides agreed to a truce until Parthian diplomats returned from the negotiations in Rome. Instead of accepting peace terms from the envoys, Nero chose, as Tactius put it, quote, a dangerous war over a disgraceful peace. End quote. Giving Corbulo emergency command of the entire east, Corbulo immediately launched an invasion into Parthian territory. Volgases, recognizing Corbulo's superior skill, asked for a peace agreement. A deal was reached when the Parthi- where the Parthians would appoint Armenia king, but the Romans had to ratify the choice. Tyrodates, Volgases' brother, and opposed king in Armenia traveled to Rome in 66 AD, where Nero crowned him king of Armenia. Patius was recalled to Rome on charges of incompetence, but Nero pardoned him, saying that suspense would be very bad for someone of such timidity. Uh, Pathia, my take by David Vernon, Pateus had been sending word to Corbulo about his disastrous situation, but he continued to send word to Rome that everything was going fine. The triumphal arc commemorating victory over Parthia was almost complete when Parthian envoys showed up with shocking news of the Roman army marching under the yoke. Marching under the yoke was where the defeated army was marched single file under a large pole while being mocked by the victorious army lining the route. It only happened to Roman army once before in 321 BC. At least there was peace once again, but many senators believe that Nero had handed Armenia over on a silver platter. To Nero's credit, though, he didn't lose any Roman territory and did what was necessary to avoid an all-out war. So... You know, I think it's, it's interesting that when we look back through history, a person so known for violence like Nero, uh, was able to, to basically save his, his empire from losing any territory and from complete embarrassment without going into full on war- warfare. And, I think a lot of times some of these these emperors, the well-known ones, and most of the well-known ones are well-known for being like vile, evil, crazy, and nuts. Um, we tend to look at them with a lot of distaste through history. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I'm saying maybe we don't really understand the challenges somebody born into a position or maneuvered into a position where they were going to become the emperor of the largest empire of the world at the time, what they really had to do, the, the burden they really had to, to bear. Um, it's just an interesting way to look at things a little bit differently. I'm actually watching a a, a mini-series or a series, a Netflix original series called Rome on Netflix right now and it focuses around the Emperor Commodus and I'll tell you what, Commodus is the Emperor from the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. The Commodus is the real communist is no, it's no comparison like the, the movie Gladiator has no bearing in history at all other than to use some people's names right um, and, but even that Netflix series has some really unfair things uh, It starts out with him you know using women and being a spoiled you know spoiled uh, young man uh, in, in in Rome and he finally gets sent by his mother out to the the, the Germanian front. To meet his father and you know you see this guy that's like in his mid-20s when this happens when you look up the history of it he's 13 when he goes that's pretty damn young and he probably wasn't doing all the shit that they made it look like he was doing at 13 because 13 year olds are only capable of so much of that stuff and uh, at the end the guy that kills him narcissus Narciss, 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 okay um they make it like he goes in and challenges them and kills them in like battle in some kind of, you know, like, like, cause he's so just dis- dis- disgusted with what he's done, which is basically fighting as a gladiator in the games, but giving his opponents dulled weapons so, th- so that he wouldn't lose or, or come to harm. Um, and he throws the sword down at his feet and, you know, Commodus picks it up and, and fights him and he takes it away from him and kills him. And, and when you look at the truth up, Commodus was killed by Narcissus, but, uh, he was killed in his bathtub while he was sick from poison that he was given by his concubine. It's a little bit different than even the documentary presents it. And I don't know, I think that we have to have a little bit of objectivity when we look at any history. Just a little add-on to the history segment today. Now, before we bring on Tatiana, I wanted to play one of her songs for you. So here's what I did. I went to Facebook, not Facebook, I went to YouTube to find like her latest album. And I was, it's very, very good. But I was listening to some of the songs on it. I thought about playing the Bitcoin song, but that's more of a jingle. It really is than a serious piece of music. It's, it's important, but it, it doesn't really showcase what she's capable of. So I'm listening to all this music and I see in the associated videos that she has a cover, a live cover, by the way of Bob Dylan's great song, Knockin' on Heaven's Door. And I listened to it, and I said, this is the song I'm going to play for the audience today. This is the song I'm going to play for the audience today. Because I think, in many ways, doing a cover song, especially a well-known song as a cover, is more difficult than doing original music. Because people have no preconception of what original music is supposed to sound like. When they hear it, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. But to take something so iconic that the only thing I can think of when I hear this, I know Eric Clapton did a version of it, was pretty good. But you know, Bob Dylan, and being an '80s child, Guns and Roses, you know, and to listen to somebody do it completely, and I mean completely and totally differently uh, than you've probably ever heard it before, and then really love it. Well, that takes talent. And this young lady we're about to hear from today is talented in many ways. And before we bring her on, I just thought I'd go ahead and play you a little music. So it's Tatiana Marus with Knocking on Heaven's Door.
0: this badge off of me I can't use it anymore It's getting too dark too dark to see Feel like I'm knocking on then yeah.
1: and with that, I want to say, hey, Tatiana, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks
2: very much. I'm happy to be
1: here. It's great to have you on. I, I think I noticed in your notes that you, you do know that you've actually been on the air List before. We, uh, we included you as our song of the day one day uh, with uh, your cover of uh, Masters of War. That was a yeah. uh, pretty amazing song. We got a lot of great feedback on that. So I'm sure there's uh, a lot of folks that are really happy to have you on uh, to hear about not just your music but the other things that you're doing. Uh, Before we start digging into that, though, can you kind of give people, like, the background of how did you become, let's just start off with a musician or an artist. Like, you know, did you study school for that? Did you decide something you want to do really young? Was it something you kind of found along the way? How how did you end up there, first of all?
2: Uh, Well, I always liked music. and, And as long as I can remember, I always wanted to do something creative. So, you know, maybe it's an actress at one point. But I thought that acting wasn't really, at the end of the day, I, I don't think acting is as powerful as music. And really, I learned early on about the power of music to kind of change mankind. And I mean, I was, I was pretty interested in, in the organization of humanity early on. So I feel like my love affair with music really also took me into the world of activism where I ended up now.
1: So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what turned you into an activist artist? You know, what, what, what kind of, what form of your background kind of brought you to the point where you wanted to make a difference in how things were going on in the world?
2: Well, I was really well-read, so I read a lot of different dystopian novels, <laughs> and even when I was little, I remember going up to my mom and saying, Mom, you know, what if we all put our money in a pile, and then everybody can just take what they need, and yeah, that sounds like a good, good idea, and she <laughs> said, no, Tanya, um... <laughs> that's communism and it's not going to work. And the reason why she said that is because she's from Poland, so she knows firsthand that that wasn't really going to be an effective uh, (laughs) organizational method. We did that! Yeah, she's like, you're definitely not going to work, that one. Um, So I went back to the drawing board, and I remember she used to play for me um, a lot of 60s and 70s singer-songwriters, and I remember listening to Peace Train and thinking about how you could use music to convey an idea and to connect with somebody emotionally in a way that just talking to them maybe wouldn't be, it just wouldn't be as powerful. Um, so, you know, early on I was, I was into that whole uh, fight the power music, but my own generation didn't really have that. Uh, I went on to Berklee College of Music in Boston, and then when I got out of school, I started working at a lot of different recording studios. And I was managing different major recording studios in the city and and trying to pursue my music, but it was really difficult and I saw a lot of problems Mm -hmm. in the music industry. And then, of course, it was 9-11, and then it was the George Bush era, and then it was the Obama era, Mm -hmm. and it became a lot more intense politically in this country. I first supported Dennis Kucinich in 2008, but I liked Ron Paul. I just didn't Mm -hmm. understand a lot about him. But in 2011, when I found out about the Federal Reserve through, money call, uh, through a film called The Money Masters and also America Freedom to fascism that's when I really started finding my own voice within my own generation, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Barack Obama. I have to say that I think Barack Obama created more libertarians than anybody except Ron Paul. Uh, there were so many people that believed there was gonna be, you know, something different or whatever and and then realize like, okay, we're gonna keep blowing people up and we're gonna keep doing all of the things that were supposed to be changed and they look for something different and I think you know, the concept that people own themselves and have a right to themselves is just a great place to start for Anything that you actually want to accomplish because if we don't first recognize that individual as having self ownership, then it's really easy to take one group of people, change them into something else, and say, well, since they're less than desirable, if we drop bombs on their house, it's okay. You know, I mean, but as soon as we start recognizing that individual, then all individuals, you know, we, we have to place value on them. And I, I think that there's a, a big part of that message there. And it, it, it's weird that it, For many people, it does start with economics. Like, when you learn about the Federal Reserve, you realize monetary creation is, like, the biggest scam ever unleashed on anybody, I think, in in all history. And so I guess that kind of is what, when Bitcoin came along, kind of pulled you in that direction?
2: Well... First, I got pulled in the political direction, and I agree with you. When I found out about the photo reserve, I figured these are my enemies. I mean, I was (laughs) really, really angry um, because I figured it out how they were swindling us. Um, And then I started singing all around the country. I did a lot of kind of Liberty-themed music. I put out an album called Love and Liberty, and I just started singing at all these different Ron Paul events around the country. But by the time 2012 like came to a close, like the, basically in August of 2012, when Ron Paul didn't get the nomination, where all these people walked out of the RNC and nobody even reported on it on television, when all of that went down, I basically lost my faith in the political system. And around that time is when I was sponsored by a company called BitPay out of Atlanta, which is actually where I'm calling you guys from. Um, and, They basically told me all about cryptocurrency and all about Bitcoin, and even though I bought a little bit of Bitcoin at $11, um, I still didn't care. And they Mm -hmm. told me, I knew all about the Federal Reserve, but because I was so averse to technology and finance, I mean, I'm a musician, don't talk to me about finance, (laughs) (laughs) that attitude, Um, but you know, so I was, I didn't care. But then when my Bitcoin started going up, I magically became much more interested. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but once um I was, I was driving with Jeffrey Tucker from um, San Diego up to Malibu. And that's a pretty long drive. And during that ride, he told me about Bitcoin in a way of how could it really impact society? And then all of a sudden it was like a little light bulb went off. And and then everything became a lot easier to understand because I guess I had some resistance to it as well. Um, and what I wanted to do was, okay, if, if, even, if I hate the Federal Reserve and I didn't care about Bitcoin, that means that other people are probably gonna have a similar problem. So I decided to create a song called the Bitcoin jingle just to kind of lure people in and kind of get them in while they're just listening to the music and then maybe they would be a little bit more open-minded. And luckily I was, I was really accepted into the crypto community. So that was around 2013 when the price hit, um, I don't know, what was it like, $1,100? So that was, you know, an exciting time to to get into cryptocurrency.
1: Oh, absolutely. Just, just to to throw salt in both of our wounds, back when you bought some at 11 bucks, if you'd bought a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin then, or or if I had, uh, we'd be looking at about $50 million in Bitcoin today. Uh, <laughs> but I think what's exciting to me is when you look back at that, there's so many people that say, well, I missed the opportunity. And I remember them saying that at the time you're talking about when it was at about $1,100. And yeah, I don't know I if you've checked lately, but this has not seemed to really slow down.
2: I think that it's always a really good time to buy crypto because, you know, in, for example, February, the price was what, around $800. $800. I mean, it's $4,800 today. Yeah. So even if it fell high at $800, or even if it fell high at $2,400, just a few months later, it's not. I mean, I don't think that people should ever speculate and go wild with their purchasing of crypto. You know, I'm pretty deep in the game, but I also am in the industry. Um, So I have probably a little bit better of an understanding of what's happening in the market. Um, But. You know, I mean, crypto can be quite lucrative as long as you don't invest more than you could stand to lose.
1: Yeah, I agree. Don't, don't, if you would not put the money on a poker table, you probably shouldn't be buying any risky investment, whether it's Bitcoin or cryptocurrency of any type or any risky investment. And there's risk to it. But I think the other side of it is like cryptocurrency is not just something you buy or trade to make money, it's something you use. And that's actually kind of where you were going with, you know, uh, Jeffrey Tucker having discussions with you on it, what it can actually do for the world is well beyond what it can do as a store of wealth.
2: Absolutely. I mean, look, when I was doing music that was libertarian in nature, it's always kind of libertarian in nature, I guess. But the real trick was uh, trying to get people into it. And um, people, if they identify as Republican or a Democrat, they're going to close off if they're not on the same team as you, even if you have the same ideas. But with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, you're basically conveying libertarian or even anarchist ideas to people without having to talk to them about anything political at all. And at the end of the day, if if I want to help humanity, you know, there's two billion people with a B that are unbanked in this world. That means that they can't get a bank account, which is fine because I normally would say, ah, forget it. I hate Chase or whatever. But actually, it's you need a bank account if you want to get yourself out of poverty. So now, even if they have a dumb phone, not even a smartphone, which everyone has smartphones now, even in the third world, but even with an SMS phone, they have a bank account because of Bitcoin. So it kind of transcends a political discussion when you can empower 2 billion people to participate in the global marketplace and actually – you know, innovate.
1: You know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. It might have even been on your show that I heard this, but one of the times that I really, like, even though I realized how powerful crypto was, I started to realize how many layers we haven't even figured out yet. Someone was talking about the concept that because it works in, in an open source environment, so Bitcoin's Bitcoin, but yet anybody can build anything to use or enable or help Bitcoin, like a wallet or something like that, and he was talking about, like, let's say, for instance, somebody was blind and they needed a technology that would enable them to use some sort of a, some type of a brokerage account or something like that. And he, he went on with how long this would take before it would be approved by government and get through the corporate apparatus. And he's like, but some guy can build this in 15 minutes in his garage and roll it out to anybody that wants it anywhere in the world. And he wasn't even really focused on that specific issue. His point was if there's a demand for something in the way that people want to exchange value with each other, we now have a place where it can be built immediately by anybody that has you know programming capabilities. And and that puts us if we're gonna be in what you would call, I guess, an arms race with the state, everything we've ever been in an arms race with the state on they've always had the advantage. You know, if you're gonna have an arms race with the state on bombs, They have the advantage. There's no way you can have that arms race against the state. But if you want to have an arms race with software, right, there's no way the state can win that arms race. It's impossible because of the permutations and the freedoms that come along with something like that. Three guys in a garage can sit down and start coding and, and build something in a few months that can revolutionize the world,
2: Well, that's very true, but they are certainly trying to stifle that innovation. It does get in the way, but what's nice about cryptocurrency is that you, if it's, if it's made illegal in the US or if they give you trouble in China, you just go to Hong Kong or you just go to Thailand or you just go to Singapore or you just go to Argentina or you go to another country because you don't, you know, with the exception of needing internet, you can do a lot of this stuff basically anywhere.
1: Well, yeah, and it's, it's borderless. People innovate
2: faster than, than governments can ever move. Governments are slow and cumbersome. They're violent, they're vicious, and they're blunt force. But technology is very nimble, and, and all the people working on it have, you know, it's like the there's just a lot more people working on it, and they can move more quickly and make adjustments more quickly.
1: You know, I, when I look at that, I, I – I love Bitcoin. I will probably always hold, use, and trade some level of Bitcoin, but the whole the whole cryptocurrency world has evolved into multiple permutations. Some of them pump and dump ICOs and things like that, but some of them really valid applications. Uh, some really I look at seeing as becoming long-term ecosystems, Swarm City, for example, and when you look at government, kind of what you're talking about, like, yeah, they want to do this or they want to do that, but they're just about to the level of sort of kind of understanding Bitcoin, right? For them they're to comprehend, idea. right? For them to comprehend the anonymity of something like Zcash, right? They, they, they're, they're, you're 70 permutations floored in innovation, and they're finally sort of kind of figuring out what happened nine years ago.
2: Right. Well... I mean, the thing is, though, is that there are going to be companies that are willing to partner with the government, so they will get some advantages, because there's always people willing to kind of sell it. Sure. And maybe they feel that that's a good thing. You know, it's a little bit presumptive to assume that everybody in cryptocurrency has to be, you know, an anarchist. I mean, I would hope they would be, but...
1: They're not. Um, no, there's there's no doubt about that. Yeah, you're right.
2: Wanna, we don't want to go that wild. Okay, yeah. so... You know, there's going to be competition on all sides, but luckily, I think that open source seems to do um, to just have a lot more security to it. So I think that in the end, hopefully, you know, the, the technology that empowers the people will win.
1: Yeah, I, I would I would think so. And when, when I, you know, again, when I look at this space, I think the biggest thing is that what Bitcoin did is prove that it didn't take a government to create a monetary system. And then once you've done that, and once a person looks at that and they see it work and they keep waiting for it to fail because it's tulip mania or whatever, and I, I just it drives me crazy when people say that because you can make more tulip bulbs really easy, just saying. But once they get past that facade and they realize, wait a minute, all economics really is is an accounting system so that people can exchange value. That's that's really all money is, is an accounting system. So because when I when I come to you and say, like, I want to buy your EP, well, you've put a certain amount of work into that. You've put a certain value on it. And somewhere, I did something for somebody else that was seen as having at least equivalent value. So now we need a way for me to transfer that value from me to you. And once people yeah. know that there's a way to do that without the state, you can outlaw it. You can regu- you can do whatever you want. But in the end, somebody's going to innovate something that allows that to happen because – that genie's out of the bottle and she ain't going back in.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, and that's good. You know, uh, I think that was like one of the things that I would bring up in the early days of Bitcoin. It's like the fact that we're getting to people to ask what is money in the first place is a, a question of, of really, really great magnitude, right? Um, because people so far just think that whatever it is that there is in their wallet is real. And even people who don't trust uh, the U.S. dollar or central banking still don't really know that there is another way. And gold is great, but gold is not the most uh, portable, I guess, is,
1: is the issue, right? No, gold um, Gold has great attributes, and it has horrible liabilities. If I have an ounce of gold and I wanted something worth about an ounce of gold from you right now, for me to get that gold to you, you're in Atlanta, you said today, right? And I'm in, in, in Fort Worth. Right. right, that's complicated. It involves risks. I've got to basically mail it to you or courier it to you somehow. If I don't know what gold tra- trade that today, it's sixteen hundred bucks, whatever. If I want something for you that's worth sixteen hundred bucks, and you give me an address, I can send you whatever crypto you want. If you don't like the crypto I send you, in fifteen seconds you can throw it through Changely or Shapeshift and change it into whatever you do want. And gold can't do that. And the That's gold true. bugs need to understand gold can't do that. Gold will never do that. It's
2: just, well, actually, there's there are companies that do that. Like on my on my Tatiana Show podcast, uh, Josh, my co-host, he has and he's like a good guy, like actually cares about has good values and stuff. Sure. He has a gold Bitcoin exchange, so basically you can switch your gold into Bitcoin um, in and out like as many times as you want. And the gold is in these vaults. And even if they go down, like you could still get it and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know all the details, but it seems like a really neat service for people who want to kind of make sure that they have their, like, if they want to go into gold easily, they can. And they're getting basically the speed of Bitcoin, but the solidness of gold, I guess. You know what I mean? No, I know what you mean. I'm going to try it out because I think, like, I want to diversify. I have a lot of cryptos and stuff, but I don't know if that's the safest thing in the world. But I'm not going to have a gold bar in my house. Um, so this is <laughs> yeah.
1: like a good one. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, and that's the thing. Like, So I am the kind of person that would say, like, if I'm going to own metal, I want to be able to hold it in my hand as I sit here with an ounce of silver in my hand, right? Um, yeah. Because it's a totally different type of wealth. It has a totally different type of anonymity. But if that's what you want, that's what I want. That's the beauty of this is that people can innovate and create the products, services, et cetera, that serve anybody because it becomes scalable. So like if you want to go out and compete with Chase Bank or you know what have you tomorrow as a bank, you know, good luck. But a person can go out with just a little bit of backing and some knowledge and create services that compete with those entities on a totally different level in crypto. And what I love about you in addition to just your music for you know, in of itself is that you're walking the walk with this stuff. You are actually using crypto, you've created your own coin, you are doing business in crypto. I think it's be a good time maybe to tell the audience about your last album and, and some stuff about the music on it, but specifically that you actually funded everything you did with that album completely with crypto.
2: I did. Yeah. That was um that was an interesting challenge and it sort of uh, goes on today. So You know, as I mentioned before, I worked in a lot of different recording studios in Manhattan, and I found it really disappointing the access to resources um, was sort of limited to people who had record deals. And there was a certain incentive structure when you had a record deal, and the incentive was not to rock the boat. Um, You know, in my view, I think it's very unusual that even though we've been at war for almost 20 years, there's not a single anti-war song on the radio, whereas there used to be a lot of those. No, I think that that's something that has been disincentivized in the more cartel-like nature of the music structure uh, and the music business. So when I got into Bitcoin, you know, after I wrote the song, I became friends with this guy named Adam B. Levine. He has a podcast called Let's Talk Bitcoin, really early adopter.
1: Yeah, I know he is. Good good guy.
2: Yeah, Adam is great. And so we started talking about how can we solve some of the problems that artists had. And so the way that I looked at it, artists had two main problems. They had uh, fans and funding. How do they eat and make sure they don't have to work 50 million hours a week just to pay rent and then not have enough time for music? And then how do they make sure that they don't play to just the waitress, right? Because nobody yeah. likes that. You want your friends to come, but how many times are you going to get them to come? <clears throat> so. We took the Indiegogo or the Kickstarter crowdfunding model and we wanted to make an improvement with it because traditionally with those models, they are they only take place for 30 or 60 days and, you know, they belong to that platform. And also if you donate $50 instead of, you get basically, you know, a t-shirt or like a CD or something. But what if you don't want that thing that you get the $50 for? If you want to show your support for me, you have to give me the 50 bucks. And that's basically it. And you get the stupid thing and you could just, put it in the back of your closet. With Tatiana coin, you would donate $50 and you would get $50 worth of Tatiana coins that you could use in the store at any time. You'd get a little bit of a discount on all my merch and it could be anything from digital content to um, exclusive events, different kind of in-person things so even like regular swag, so like t-shirts and stuff. Um, and you could basically trade those coins. You could send a little bit to each of your friends Or you could hold on to them until there's something in the store that you actually like. Maybe you already have all my swag. So it gave the fans a lot more flexibility. But what it also did was it allowed me to have a contact directly with my fans as well. Because even though I really liked Friendster and MySpace and Facebook, like those platforms, they own those relationships. As we can see now, on YouTube, there's a lot of censorship. On Facebook, there's a lot of censorship. Same thing on Twitter. So if you don't own that relationship, you're basically building up a lot of value for another company. And so that's why Facebook is rich because they make money off of all of our data. So if you're connected to me, though, with a Tatiana coin, that means that we're basically permanently connected as long as you have that coin in your wallet. So we raised $10,000, and I funded my third album, uh, Keep the Faith, with it. But what we figured out was it was almost like we made a car, but we didn't have any roads. And so the past three years, Adam and his team have created a company called Tokenly, and they've basically been creating all of the infrastructure. And we're just about ready to kind of go out there and do a music product, but it's kind of hard to figure out the best way to move forward right now because the SEC regulations are still kind of tight. And I mention it because it's really unfortunate that innovation is stifled at the root a lot of times because of this kind of government involvement. I mean, I'm trying to sell like music around and and it kind of really it's hard to experiment if you're worried that somebody from the government's going to knock on your door and they're going to throw you in jail. And I take jail pretty seriously because. I have an innovator friend that is now serving double life as for 40 years in, uh, in a maximum security prison in Colorado. And that's Ross Ulbricht. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the, with the Ross Ulbricht Silk Road story. Do you know if they are?
1: Uh, I've talked about it before, but, but, but please just continue because with this, the size of my audience and the way people come in and out, we have new people listening every single day. Okay. Um, and this so is an important I'll
2: give you that story. So one of the things that I learned about when I first got into the cryptocurrency space was something called the Silk Road. When I heard about it, I thought, like, oh, God, this sounds stupid, because it was basically an eBay online for drugs. It wasn't just drugs. It was actually a free market, and they had rules. So as if there was a victim, you couldn't sell it. But it operated on the principle that everybody owns their own body. So people sold, you know, a lot of marijuana, some other kinds of drugs, sometimes medicine, a lot of people who were treating their children's Um, diseases with, for example, cannabinoids. Uh, They were getting their drugs online. There were Bibles for sale. And they had a book club. It was essentially the first real free market. And it was also a great testing ground for cryptocurrency and for Bitcoin specifically because that's when Bitcoin was coming up. It was the only crypto, pretty much. So um, they shut down the Silk Road and they took Ross to jail. Ross Ulbricht is the alleged creator of the site and they knew him as the Dread Pirate Roberts and there was a lot of corruption in the case and there was a lot of um, like two government agents have now gone to prison because they were stealing and extorting money from people on the site Um, there's been evidence of tampering with the evidence itself and there are a lot of different precedents being set by the case in terms of can the government for example seize your laptop well protections with the fourth amendment say basically they can't If you have a file cabinet in your house, they're not going to say file cabinet when they get the search warrant. They have to say, you know, uh, banking file from March 2017. That's what they're looking for. But if they could take your laptop and just rummage through it, a laptop is basically a file cabinet on steroids. So when they start basically punishing people for things like that, also, it basically is saying that there's transferred intent. So if you own a website and people behave illegally on your website, are you responsible for that? And in Ross's case, they said yes, but when people buy cyanide on Amazon and their you know kids use it to kill themselves, is that considered that? Or or on Craigslist, when they have Craigslist murders, is the founder of Craigslist responsible for that? So they ended up giving Ross double lifeless 40 years, and this was for all nonviolent crime. I mean, this is a guy who invented a website. So it has... A distinctive and chilling effect on the people and on innovation but for me it really sparked my interest in the case and learning more about the terrors of the drug war and how it's used to basically ruin lives not only here in America by throwing people in prison but it has rippling effects throughout the world Um, I became very good friends with Ross's mother who is now tirelessly advocating on his behalf traveling around the world talking about his case and the way that it impacts everybody. And I became also good friends with Ross. So I decided to write a song called The Silk Road because you know, if you hear the story on the surface, you think like, oh, this is some drug website. It sounds like a bad idea. But when you look under the surface, there's a lot more to it. And I wanted people to relate to it in a way where they were emotionally open so they could actually hear what was happening because it was something like Ross is the victim. The government is the aggressor in this case. And now I've seen how many millions of people are in prison because of stupid drug infractions. And then you start thinking about how much money everybody is making off of these publicly traded prisons that even judges can participate in, in terms of like buying stocks in. So it gets a little bit wild. And so I wrote the song, The Silk Road. And then I went to visit Ross in prison several times. Not many people have actually met him, but I've gone um, over a dozen times now and he's a wonderful person. Nothing like the way that they painted him. I mean, he's probably the coolest person I've ever met. And for my birthday, he drew a picture of me and I wanted to use the picture that he drew of me for my birthday as the album cover because it allows me to point out a couple of things. Number one, it allows me to talk about his case and raise awareness because, you know, he can't rot until he's, you know, double dead uh, in his prison. That's just unconscionable for all nonviolent crimes. And it sort of rallied me around these anti drug war causes. And it also shows that artists these days, they cannot take controversial positions. If I was signed to a major record label, they wouldn't let me have a political prisoner and this, you know, alleged criminal doing my album cover. That that would be completely unthinkable. And and my view is the arts are critical for uh for an honest public discussion of what is going on in the community. And government is doing this huge propaganda campaign, you know, everything on TV is all oh, this wonderful police officer, this great president, and all oh, this wonderful doctor. You know, it's it's kind of nonsense. So our consciousness, though, is being manipulated by this. Like, we're all being brainwashed, essentially. So the music needs to be free. The art needs to be free. And I believe that by linking the creative community with cryptocurrency, you're opening up opportunities for funding and also interconnectivity that is outside the control of the state. And I think that that's basically one of the most important things that I can do on this this planet is help with that. Because I was so inspired when I was a kid, and, and this is who I am today. Because that Cat Stevens song, many years later, I'm doing all this crazy stuff to try and help other people become like the Cat Stevens.
1: No, it's I, 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 if I tried to agree with you more, then I will sound like I'm agreeing with you now. It will sound pathetic because everything you just said makes complete sense, and I think it's a huge reason for people. In media in general today, whether it's an artist, whether it's people putting together some sort of a new, you know, like an actor's type thing, whether it's what what I do and you do as well as a talk show host, uh, I don't care. Like, today we have the ability to run our own banking system and use our own distribution systems across the internet. Even if they censor something like YouTube or whatever, there's always another way to do it. And by remaining independent you maintain the ability to deliver the message that's actually important to you. You don't have to conform to somebody else. And that's that's important, even if you and I had completely different opinions about what we want to deliver. Both of us should be able to be heard, and then people should be able to take that information, do what they will with it, and then determine who they want to support, or what they want to support, or what different actions that they want to take. And when you look at... The, what I call the illusion of choice or the wonderful fiction of media today. You look at this landscape and it looks like there's more choice than there's ever been before. There's 8,000 cable channels and all. But when you when you pare it all down, it's all owned, you know, like 95% of it's owned by six companies.
2: Absolutely. It's like that old um, George Carlin skit, right? You can get like a million different kinds of bagels, but you have no other choices when it comes to actual uh, permissible thought. You know, an expression I've been hearing lately, which I really like, is, like, cultural Marxism. Um, It's made it so the only moral position of somebody who's sort of engaged in media and, like, engaged in the outside world is to be a raging leftist. And anything beyond that is considered immoral and, like, just completely unacceptable. You might as well be a little mini Hitler. Um, and it's, Which it's,
1: they'll probably it's, call you, by the way. Question. They'll probably call you Hitler, by the way. I mean, that's that's what you're going to get if you take anything other than that position.
2: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's absolutely certain to happen. But at the same time, then that word becomes less effective. Of course. And then they inflame these white supremacists. I mean, the whole seven of them that there are in the country. I'm sure that there's racism on all sides of this country <laughs> and in every other place in the world. But the 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 imagination that there are so many white supremacists I mean there's I think that they've done studies maybe there's like 5,000 in the whole country you would think that this was just a raging race war on every street corner there would just be lynchings I mean it's, it's bananas um the hysteria that people have been whipped into this frenzy and any kind of dissent is an automatic admission that you're a racist you're this you're that I mean they just come up with any kind of slur that they can
1: And and to be fair, it's both sides that do this. If you take any position that's contrarian to the mainstream left or right position... If you're talking to someone on the right and you do that, what is the first thing they do? You're a libtard, right? You're shoved all the way to the extreme left. And, you, and, and to your point, if you do that with somebody on the left and take any kind of a contrarian position to the mainstream leftist principle, well, you're a rice, racist, neo-Nazi, skinhead, Trump-loving, you know what have you? And it's it's maddening, but I think that it's it's independence that can actually continue to put out a message of sanity, and I don't know if it's if it's dragging or luring people out of either one of those extremes, but it does seem that this, and I don't even want to call it a centrist, because then you're back in the political spectrum, but I guess maybe common sense, rational world does seem to be growing finally for a change.
2: I think it depends on who you ask. I'm always very encouraged but I was talking to my friend here in Atlanta, and she says that there are so many close-minded people. Um, but you know what? I don't know if I get too bogged down with measuring the effectiveness too much, because I think, like, you can only have such an effect on the world. You can only do so much, and you can't save them all. So I think people <laughs> have to maybe just accept that a little bit and move on to the next person. I, I like to reach out to a lot of different people, especially with my music and stuff, but sometimes I think you just got to call it. Be like, come on, this one's not going to be a convert, and just give it up and move on to the next Well,
1: thing. in your so friend's world, they're, they're... looking for it, if, if looking you, for the truth. Yeah, I mean, if you're in your friend's world, it sounds like they're trying to evangelize, and you're going to run into tons of closed-mindedness because the first thing you're going to do when you talk to a person about anything that they're not comfortable with is hit cognitive dissonance. And that... What happens is we end up in this, this this struggle for energy dynamic where you keep pushing and of course if I keep pushing at you that makes you resist more and the more you resist the more that I push until we alienate each other where I, I've kind of found like the main way that I've seen this really begin to spread is when people plant a seed right and when you plant a seed like if you if you put a, a bean seed in the ground you don't sit there and like like will it to grow now. Right, you you walk away and assuming that you know there's enough water and the temperature is right and the seed was planted in, in fertile soil when you come back there's there's a bean plant and eventually that bean plant will produce beans and make more beans right. But instead of understanding that like kind of the the, the real role that we should serve in in the liberty community as a whole, no matter what part of that spectrum we're on, is planting those seeds and letting them grow. Instead of trying to, you know, you can't will a thing to grow. It doesn't work that way. There's a there's a natural time that it takes a bean seed to grow. But at least we know what that is. You know, seven to ten days. It's going to germinate. When you plant a seed in somebody's mind or in somebody's heart about the concept that like this one thing should infuriate you, even if you think it doesn't. If you actually look at it and you walk away from that. That sits inside that person. And that's why I think music is one of the really great venues to do that. A person will hear a song, they'll like a song, it'll be catchy, and you sometimes, they really don't even know the meaning of that song. But one day they sit and they're singing along with that song, and then they, they, they hear something they really never heard before. And that's another yeah. way to get that seed in there. And then that seed starts bouncing around in the brain, and then the next time something comes up that they're just supposed to immediately have a strong opinion about for or against... They ask the question, what's really going on here? Or why do I feel this way? Or what is the source of this information? Just going a show on this yesterday. If you can get people to just start asking before they respond certain questions about it and examine it and then trust that the average human being, if they start asking these questions, will sooner or later come to some level of a more rational understanding of the world, I think we'd go a long way. I mean, that's why you don't... You're not taught that in school and they will not teach that in school because that concept is incredibly dangerous to the people that are in power right now. The concept of simply questioning information before you accept it and and more so the concept of deciding this is what I want to know versus just being spoon-fed. I, you know, I mean, I look at it like the media is like this giant bird and the American people are like little birds in a nest and they're just they just vomit into the mouth of the waiting baby birds and whatever comes – they take, and then they either like it or they don't like it, but they only accept what what is delivered instead of saying, what do I really want to know or understand? And all of the things that we do in, I guess you'd call it alternative media, I think maybe independent media is something that I prefer, allows different ways to seed that into the minds of people.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but then again, I get a little bit disappointed when people are, Complaining about, I don't know, cause I think, I think like YouTube and those platforms, they can really try and block people. Sure. Get access to it. So I hope that there's new solutions, um, that can take hold, right? Uh, and that's where I think that, that Bitcoin kind of offers some solutions there, right? Cause then maybe we don't have to depend on those current systems. I have a song called Make a YouTube Video. So, <laughs> you know, I really believe in the power of, of these platforms, but, now that I know that they're basically uh, uh, you know, not, not doing things like fair and square, then now there's, there's, a, there's a need for something else. So hopefully people won't get too bogged down with the existing ones, and we can find some solutions outside of the, the realm of control, so to speak.
1: Well, if you look at YouTube, the real problem there is that people built their monetary base on someone else's controlled platform. So
2: well, that's what, why Tatiana Coin is what that's specifically why I wanted to do it because it's like, why are you making this for somebody else?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so, if you if if people had built, let's say, and they use YouTube as part of how they build their individual empire, right? And mm-hmm. they have their videos on YouTube, and that gets and that's part of a funnel that's designed to get people to come to your website or to become a member of your fan club or buy your product or become a listener to your, your your talk show or whatever it is. And all that is is a funnel, and then YouTube starts demonetizing videos. Personally, I'm outraged at who they've done it to, but when it comes down to how it affects me and the temperature of my water in my pool, it doesn't. Because I never built my any significant portion of my income On YouTube, so I don't really care. I care if they do it to you, if you understand what I'm saying. But it doesn't really affect me if they try to do something to me. And and artists and media people need to understand that anytime someone else controls the platform, that's not only a risk. Eventually, it's a likelihood. And part of the reason I never did this is because you know my technical background is in internet marketing. All the way back to like, you know, the mid nineties when the first search engines, like when Yahoo was a directory with a couple hundred sites in it, and you know, the first renditions of Google and all. And so my expertise was actually in manipulating the search engines and marketing my own websites, websites for customers, what have you. And so I understood the search algorithms. And when Google came out with AdSense, I started making a lot of money really fast. Because I could go out and build a little website about something like construction equipment. And those are really high-dollar ads, and I can own the organic search and get a lot of traffic and just start making money on the spread. They come there, click on a Google ad, and I make two bucks. You do that a couple times, you know, a couple, three times a day across a 100 different sites. All of a sudden, you make a lot of money really passively. Well, Google yeah. just changed the rules. They, when, when they got to a point where, like, okay, we completely own this space now, they just changed the rules. They just changed the payout. They just changed how they did everything. And you know what you could do about it as a publisher? The square root of zero. The square root of less than zero. There was zero answer to that. So when they started doing this on the YouTube videos, I'm like, that's the same platform. That's the exact same platform they did this to people with, you know, 12 years ago. So I knew you can't bet on that. You know, you can't do that. And even things like a Patreon, which I've played with, and I have a lot of people listening to the show that are kind of um, entrepreneurial. So I've said, like, this is a platform you can do. There's no guarantee that they won't do that to you, but like I run a members platform where people do business directly with me. I'm not going to kick myself out. And when you're setting up things like with what you're doing with Tatiana Coin and direct relationship with your customer, Tatiana is not going to fire Tatiana. And that is the essence of like the new world entrepreneurship in in this space. And what's what's happened is. These companies make an awful lot of money like you said using other people's content and data but then they made it really easy for you to just tick a button and all of a sudden you're making 100 bucks, 200, 300, 400, 500, maybe $1,000 a week. And then people begin to see that as like their thing and really you were sharecropping in somebody else's field and when you made the field valuable enough they just decided to take it away from you.
2: Right. Well, that was the whole thing with the artist coin. You know, we built a platform where you can use it and, you know, other companies will be white labeling it and we'll be partnering with people. But at the end of the day, the coin itself is yours. So that relationship with the fans, it belongs to you. I didn't want to build something that was going to be, okay, well, great. Now, how are you different from Facebook? Because you own the relationship. So if somebody, let's say, was using it through my system, or, or, you know, a competitor system, if they get mad, they could just take their coin holders and they could go somewhere else. They could build their own thing. So, there are a lot of different ways that people can opt out, and I thought that that was That's you know, cool.
1: critical going forward. Just so I understand you, are you saying, like, so I can't sing, but let's say that I could, right? And I have the Jack Spearco album, and I wanted to do, like, the Spearco coin. The, is your system something that basically allows me to basically roll out my own coin without, like, a lot of technical knowledge or something like that?
2: Exactly. It okay. allows you to make your own coin without ever having to know how to do anything crypto-ish.
1: That's very cool. And then they have people have freedom with that, so you, like you don't have like this massive over, you know, owner onerous oversight of it or what have you.
2: Well, you know what? I think it's going to be interesting to see what we're allowed to do. That's <laughs> that's really the, the limitation. Um, I I foresee a really robust environment where people can in, interact. But whether or not we're going to be managing that or if that's going to be something that is done by partners, that, that remains to be seen. But regardless, it's an ecosystem that is designed to partner with all different kinds of protocols and all different types of projects. So even though, you know, my interest is in creating music tokens, uh, there are other ways of using it, you know, sort of like as a loyalty point or something that's used as a community coin. Uh, so there's a lot of different options.
1: Uh, Anything that anybody trades value for value as an individual entity, um, sort of a brand loyalty thing. Whether that brand is an artist or that brand is, I don't know, a a, a programmer's code. It could be anything. That's 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 cool. On artists, though, what what do you think's next? I've got some stuff here on your notes uh, about Token FM and other projects. What's up with that?
2: Well, that's, that's kind of what I've been a little bit bummed out the past couple days is, okay. you know, we built this whole thing, token.fm, and now we're getting that pushback. So like I said, it's gonna maybe not be something that we can run right away because of all of the, it's so frustrating because it's really, it's nothing technical, it's all government involvement, um, that, that makes it really bad.
1: Huh, so is, are they seeing it as some sort of like, is it SEC involvement like ICO type stuff or I mean what, what's the what's the real issue there with token with FM?
2: Well it's how do you make sure that you don't accidentally enable a security? Because even if uh, we tell people you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to promise a return or something like that, they can basically do whatever they want. We can't stop them.
1: And I got the government
2: you. will be responsible. And because There's a lot of gray areas because it's such a new technology, you know, something that may be okay today may not be okay tomorrow. And even if you're in the right, you end up having an issue because, you know, you might not, they might change the rules on you or it's going to cost you so much in legal fees that it knocks you out of the game before you even start. So... You know, I'm curious to find out what's going to happen over the next few weeks and how we decide to handle um, some of those concerns. Because, look, I saw what they did with Ross Ulbricht.
1: No, I can see the corollary. I can see the corollary now that you're 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 put you know pointing that out that you know Ross was held responsible for what people did on Silk Road. So if you build a platform that lets somebody basically essentially create a security, then the SEC could come after you and basically say you are the you're the actual guilty party.
2: Right, and it wouldn't be me because I'm not, I'm just an advisor on the project, like I'm not yeah. of an officer or anything, but you never know. And the point is, is that I don't want anybody to go to jail, you know? Um, so it's unfortunate that that clarity isn't there and and the initial money to fight if, if that comes into question, if it becomes something where we need to involve legal teams. I mean, lawyers cost a million dollars, everybody knows that. Yeah. So you got to be really careful when innovating so you don't accidentally put yourself in a position where you put your business out of business.
1: This thing seems like it needs to be in a, in a corporation, in a server farm in Barbados or something like that, honestly. Might be one of the avenues to take there. Um,
2: well, I want to do anything legal you know that's not like we don't want to live on the outside of the law the problem is that the law makes it really difficult for businesses to innovate yeah even in simple use cases like music
1: yeah yeah i mean and yeah we won't go down that road because it's a pretty deep and whining one i mean what 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 is legal and what is moral are just very, very different things in many instances. Sometimes they're the same thing. It's illegal to punch a baby in the face. I also think it's immoral to punch a baby in the face. But there's a lot of things that the law says is illegal that I think are completely moral actions. And uh, some of them I think are anti competitive and by the you know there for that purpose. And then some I think are just people you think you're helping but you're not. Uh, that feel that people actually need some sort of a safeguard or protection from something like, you know, an evil Tatiana that would advise a company that would go out and actually let artists sell their music with their own currency. Because that's dangerous. But
2: <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I had a conversation. I was at a fintech conference here in Atlanta the other day, and I was talking with somebody about ICOs. And he's saying, well, you know, people, they can invest in ICOs, but they can lose so much money. And I guess that's true. People can unwittingly lose a lot of money, just like they did in the dot-com bubble. But first of all, grow up, everybody, and do some research before you invest in something. If you can't figure that out, I don't know. Like, maybe nature needs to, to, like, help with that selection. But I think it's important to do your research before doing anything. And also... Um, it, it is a way to keep people out of the um, investment world, right? Like it kind of keeps poor people. When you when you basically make blockades for people to invest, you're basically saying that unless you have X amount of money, you can't invest, and we're your nanny state, and we're going to tell you how to spend your money. But if you go to a regular casino and you blow all your pay there every single week, nobody has a problem with that. I mean, sometimes they do, but I don't know. I think that. The opportunities for the every man to get in on all these different kinds of experiments is, is really appealing. and I also at the same time hope that when people do decide to, to mess around with these things that they realize that there's a lot of risk and that they should try and mitigate that by getting as educated as they can be.
1: Well I, be, I agree yeah. but I also don't think that like like blocking ICOs doesn't actually protect anybody's money. And the reason it doesn't protect the average person's money is you, what was happening with ICOs anyway is people with lots of money who would be accredited investors and can invest in anything they want were buying out the whole ICO anyway. And then the person that wants to buy 1000 bucks worth of basic attention tokens or whatever ends up paying four to five times um, what they would have paid in the ICO a week later as soon as it hits an open exchange anyway. So a lot of times these rules and regulations that are supposedly protecting people don't actually protect anybody, but they make people feel better. And what they really do when it comes to something like ICOs is they prevent companies from raising startup funding, which which I will be the first one to admit there are a lot of ICOs that are pump-and-dump garbage. But I'm also a believer that if you want to spend your money on that, if you want to bet on that, just like you mentioned gambling, I'm not going to prevent you from betting on horse number five in, in the race at the, uh, the sweeps tonight, right? I'm not going to do that because that's your money that you earned. And as long as the person that's that's selling anything isn't misleading people about it, you know, as long as they're not like, we guarantee your money when they don't, then I think, you know, like they're you said, grow up.
2: Misleading.
1: You know, that's that's misleading. But, like, I think if you're going to buy into a, an alternative crypto coin that you're going to have to first purchase Bitcoin... And then convert it to ether, and then go participate in an ICO. You probably have some idea what's going on. Or you wouldn't even be able to do it.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? You would able- It's not like you can put your credit card down and do that. You have to take multiple steps to get involved in an ICO.
2: I agree, and I mean, look, let the free market reign. I think at the end of the day, that's what ends up happening. And then, but when you put in government protection. It doesn't let the free market correct itself either. I mean, I think that there are a lot of policing solutions within, within the community that have been discussed, uh, in terms of best practices and sort of kind of figuring out which things are BS and which things are not. But then when you have the government involved, people think, oh, well, the government gave its approval, so that means
1: it's great. Mm-hmm. It is. Like, ah,
2: I think that's actually what that means. So, <laughs> uh,
1: I think it makes people less cautious is what you're saying. Like yeah, when, when exactly. you you have this reasonable belief that anything you're allowed to invest in the government said is okay and safe. Well you can go out and start margin trading tomorrow and you can lose your ass in a heartbeat. Sure. You know, I mean there's there's no real hurdle to that. You can go take your entire life savings and invest in a new company on the Nasdaq that could go, you know, chapter thirteen in six months. There's there's nothing that really protects you. But people do less due diligence because there's a facade of protection. You know, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, Absolutely. L- let's talk and a
2: little bit about your, um, with banking, right? Uh, yeah. The FDIC insurance and all that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that, it, that system works as long as they all don't fail. Well,
2: you know, I was looking at a talk by Andreas Antonopoulos the other day, and he was talking about how in Greece they took twenty percent of the oh, yeah. haircut to all of their people, and then in Cyprus they did a similar thing. So, I don't know, FDIC insurance. I don't know. Yeah. Seems like they just took a bunch of people's money. That doesn't <laughs> seem like a really good policy. So I don't really, I don't know if I believe in some of these
1: insurances that are supposedly in in place.
2: Uh, because, yeah, if everybody runs for the bank, they're not going to pay that
1: off. No, they can't. There's not enough money to do that. But on a limited failure in general, yes, if you have $25,000 at the local bank and it goes under, yeah, FDI still cover that. But you're talking about it's really kind of a separate issue, though. I mean, if uh, if the government just decides to need some money and they just do a wealth tax of 20% and your money's sitting in the bank versus anywhere else, they can go do that. If your money's not sitting in the bank... Well, they can't, and that's why I'm not like I'm not like liquidate your bank account and go 100 percent Bitcoin. That's not my advice at all. But by diversifying, you have different things in different baskets, and you limit your liability for everything in each sector. Because if one sector is attacked, the other one it remains unattacked. And generally speaking, when a sector is attacked by something like that, the other sector not only is safer, it generally goes up in value as people move into it trying to get away. So that's exactly. that's kind of my approach there. L- let's talk to people a little bit about your show. You got the Tatiana show, and I discovered that when I discovered the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. And uh, you talk a lot more about stuff like we're talking about today than you know just your music and things like that, right?
2: Yeah, I think you know, there's a lot of things that I've gotten exposed to because of my music, a lot of different cool communities that I've gotten to tap into. So somewhere along the way, the folks at Liberty.me asked me to do a podcast and then I started uh, syndicating it um, on Free Talk Live uh, or, no LRN.fm and then on IPM Nation and then also, of course, on Let's Talk Bitcoin, which is probably where I have most of my audience living. And I've been doing that for a few years. It gets really hard to do while I'm traveling and hmm. also because we do video. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, It's a really cool way to learn about things directly from the people that I find interesting. And I try and make sure that the crypto talk doesn't get too technical because I don't want people to... There's plenty of technical shows on Bitcoin. That is not what mine is about.
1: No, and I think yours is actually about the more important thing, which is the philosophical and practical components of cryptocurrency and everything around that. You know, I've heard you do. I've heard you do, do, do shows that were really had nothing to do directly with cryptocurrency, dedicated to trying to help Ross Albright, uh, which I think is fantastic. And that is important as that movement is. That also brings up this whole other can of worms about well, you know, if they can do that to a person, what can they do to you? And should should these things even be doable? And that causes more questions. And I think like if you're if you're making a difference in the world. The, the way that you do that isn't by telling people what to think. It's by forcing them to ask questions that they don't have answers for and making them seek those answers. And That that, that seems a lot like what many of your topics do.
2: Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, there's something universal in it for everybody. Um, the ideas of liberty and of freedom, they sort of extended to so many different avenues. So... Maybe somebody is impassionate about one topic but you can kind of give them the same underpinnings philosophically when relating it to a different topic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's yeah, you know, the more varied what have you because freedom and liberty means the same thing and a different thing to every individual. Right? There's the basic concept of liberty or freedom if it's pure is basically being able to do whatever you want with whatever's yours until you harm or threaten or take from somebody else but how people exercise that liberty is as varied as the individuals that exist in the world and what I find is many people have a very twisted view of liberty which is I want everybody free to do all the things that I think are okay Right. And that's, that's right. not, that's not, remember you know, that commercial, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's, that's kind of how I feel when I, when I see a lot of people that, and it seems to be more indicative of the right, because they're quicker to use that word liberty and freedom. Uh, and, and then, you know, they're, they're all up in arms because, you know, somebody decided to exercise that freedom in a way that they didn't like. And, you know, I, I think if you want freedom, then you have to take the messy part of it too. And, again, that comes from being willing to ask yourself enough questions.
2: Yeah, I think that it's such a relatable message. It's unfortunate that the country has devolved the way that it has because the conversation was so elevated in 2012. Even though we lost, there was so much positivity there. And I love that the Ron Paul movement had the left and the right sort of united, whereas Trump... Oh, I mean, I, I actually, I, I would have preferred him over Hillary in my view, right? They're both horrible, but Trump at least was saying fake news. He yeah. was saying, left her up. He had a lot of good things in there. He was talking about 9-11. Um, but now it's really been between him and the whole Obama, like the whole race war now and everything. It's It's such a divisive, miserable conversation. And it's like the ideas of liberty have become completely out of the option. You know what I mean like the, like we don't even have that as a as a part of the discussion in a way anymore. And then you have things like what happened with Chris Cantwell. Um you know that that make libertarians look really bad, which is false categorization to to assume everybody is Chris Cantwell. I mean even libertarians didn't like Chris Cantwell before he went on that whole vice uh thing. Yeah. So yeah. You know, it's just, it's unfortunate that people have lost that ability to communicate, but I do think that it's a common sense message and I've been watching the Ron Paul show lately. I hadn't watched it in a while because it's like, it looks kind of old fashioned and nerdy. (laughs) so It's not (laughs) the most exciting show to necessarily watch, but his, his countenance and his calm demeanor and his sticking to the message and his integrity it's very important and it's something that people, um, can really relate to even now. And, and he's never really antagonistic with anybody. He gets passionate, but he's never turning anybody off and he's always reasonable. And I think that it's nice to get reminded of that message when you turn on the television and everybody's screaming and having a fight every five seconds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, bec- the Jerry Springer show has become CNN, Fox News, et cetera. It seems like. Um, which I think is why what you do, what I do, and what many people in our sector do is so important. You've got another thing going on called a Crypto Media Hub. you want to tell us what that looks like? Has, has that been interfered with by any of this other stuff we're, we're talking about today or anything?
2: Um, I would say that Crypto Media Hub has really been taking off lately just because of the whole interest in the blockchain space overall. Um, I started my company in 2015 and it was really just a media buy company so we would just do advertising buys for people and we had relationships with all the different media outlets but it's evolved and we do a lot of event consulting so I'll help events pick out which speakers would be good and help them come up with a strategy Um, I also work with uh, Callie Ulbricht who's a good friend of mine, Ross's sister so um, she's my CMO and now we've been taking on bigger clients because she has more of a firm marketing background. So we're combining my crypto with her more traditional training. And I don't know, I really like all the clients that we've been working with. We've been working on a lot of really neat projects. So we've expanded our services to offer PR content, writing blogs, um, event consultations, all different kinds of things like that. So it's been really neat. And then in between all of that, I'm also uh, speaking at a lot of different events around the world, so not just singing but talking a little bit about cryptocurrency and why it's important with the arts. So I've definitely been keeping really busy with all of
1: that stuff. (laughs) That's very, very cool. Um, Now, real quick before we we, we wrap up on Crypto Media Hub, is that geared toward artists or is that pretty much... You know, no, it's for
2: crypto companies. Broad... So if you have a company that wants to get into cryptocurrency, like we can give you blockchain consulting and partner you with good technical partners. But most of our clientele are companies that are already creating a coin or already have an ongoing project and they just need marketing or social media or management of, you know, their Slack and Telegram channels. Those can get really crazy actually. Uh, so just anything that basically deals with communicating uh, the brand to the audience, whether that's through uh, press or through social, all that stuff.
1: Very very cool, Tatiana. And where where can people learn more about all the work that you're doing? Get you know fig- find out how to get on you, listen to your show, all of that stuff. Uh, one website, multiple websites, whatever you want. You have the uh, the con here at the end to uh, to control uh, your own promotion.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, uh, the, people can check out Crypto Media Hub at CryptoMediaHub.com. And then all of my music, including Tatiana Point, if people want to pick up their own Tatiana Coin, they can get it at TatianaMorose.com. And, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Queen Tatiana. I'm on Facebook, Tatiana Morose Music. So I'm all over the place. And if people want to listen to the Tatiana Show, they can go to the TatianaShow.com.
1: And folks, to make this easy, I'll make sure that links to all of that stuff is in the show notes today. And with that, I want to say, hey, Tatiana, uh, thanks for being with us today. I really enjoyed our interview. Great, yeah, me
2: too. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk
1: to you soon. So great interview with a really cool person, man. I, I really do like Tatiana. I love the work she's doing. I love that you know she started out life as a child is basically a to be communist, but had the good fortune to be the daughter of Polish immigrants who were like, yeah, no, that doesn't work at all, um, and became more and more a true libertarian the more and more she actually wanted to get things accomplished and became a, a, a successful entrepreneur. And the more you successfully – this is why I always encourage entrepreneurship – the, the more you do as an entrepreneur, the more you will see the problems inherent with the state. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see someone come from a very different vantage point in life and end up at the same place many of us have with that. And she does really good work, and as you heard earlier, she's an incredibly talented musician. Um. So anyway, if you like the work I do, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. When you get there, you can see all the reviews of products that I've done on Amazon, or you can just do your online shopping through there, and then no matter what you were going to buy, even if you were going to buy it anyway, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. It doesn't cost you nothing extra. A couple seconds of your time to go there first. Anyway, um, today's item of the day is one I've never reviewed before for you. It's a uh, curry paste. Yeah, yeah, I like to cook, guys. You know that. And it's uh, it's made by a company called Ma- Mayploy. Mayploy M a e p l o y. And this is the best curry paste I've found. There's a bunch of different kinds. I give you a recipe. Uh, for a soup that I made last night, which was a green curry, uh, green Thai curry fish soup that I made with Pacific rockfish and shrimp and scallops and peppers and sweet potato greens and Thai water spinach and Swiss chard and green onion and garlic and coconut milk and lemongrass. I'm getting, I want to eat it again. Ginger and green curry paste and making the base broth from coconut milk, uh, some onions and stuff like that and better than bullion fish base. Man, it came out good, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you something about curry paste. Don't overdo it. Man, last night I was just like, Dorothy's not going to eat any of this. I'm just going to make it hot, because I like it hot. I used about three tablespoons in this fairly sizable pot of soup. I felt like I ate mace. Now, don't get me wrong. I was very, very happy, but my face was sweating, and I felt like I ate mace. Uh, curry is hot. And I, I think that's the one thing that most curries have in common, is that they're spicy. So... If you don't like spice, you may not be able to find a curry that you like. But what I I kind of want to encourage people to do in expanding their culinary uh, horizon is to experiment with different ethnic foods. And curry curry is a lot like saying barbecue sauce or seasoning or spice mix, right? Like every region has their own sort of kind of thing, and then each person within it has their own sort of kind of thing. And if when you think of curry, you think of kind of like that Indian yellow over. Coriandered over, cumined over turmeric thing that you don't like—that uh, some people describe as tasting like an Indian's diaper—that um, doesn't necessarily have to be what curry is. There's all different types of curry, and I give you kind of a rundown of the different ones and a, a, a sampler pack you can uh, you can try out as well in today's review. So check it out, tspaz.com, or just go to survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling her. Click the t Spaz link. But again, always, guys, you can help us so easily by doing your online shopping through t spaz No reason not to do it. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, I was actually going to preempt the song of the day and play another Tatiana song. Uh, but I've done that to John a little bit lately, uh, who puts these together for us. And I actually thought today's song was a great song to finish the, the, the show with. It's by Eric Church, and it's called Kill a Word. And I, I like it because it... It, it has two different ways we can look at it. When I mean, you listen to this song, you'll hear him talking about killing words like hate and jealousy and envy and things like that and replacing them with other good words. And he, he released this during the campaign, by the way, when lots of bad words were flying back and forth between both sides of each other, villainizing each other and not having any kind of a reasonable discussion, and he said it was a good time to release it. And I get the point, you know, that it would be better if we could, you know strangle hatred or, or what have you. And you hear all these colorful metaphors that will have for all these words that convey bad and evil things and, 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 and things that we just would prefer not to have to deal with. But kind of my other side of this is this propensity by people to want to change the meaning of words and the reality of not really being able to do that or not actually solving any problems or actually making them worse We can get rid of the word envy, but getting rid of the word will not get rid of the fact that envy exists. We can get rid of the word evil, but getting rid of the word evil will not take evil out of the world. We can banish people from speaking about things that we don't want to hear about or we don't like or we think are wrong or really are morally wrong. But getting rid of those words or changing those words or trying to change the meanings or making it not okay to say, say those words will not remove the components uh, behind them and the things behind them that are the reality of the world. And if we don't have those words to discuss those things openly and honestly, how would we ever expect that we could ever change them? So while, while killing a word may sound like a good idea and it might even make a good song, It's probably not a good way to run a country or to run a world or to run your own life. One of the tenets of 1984 was removing words from the dictionary, and there's a reason. While there's some words that I would prefer we had less of what they represent, I'm not for killing any words. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Kill a
0: word and watch it die. I'd poison never and shoot goodbye and beat regret when I felt I had the nerve. Yeah, I pound fear into a pile of sand, choke lonely out with my bare hands, and I'd hang hate so that it can't be heard. If I, I could only kill a word. Take brokenness out back Break heartbreak, stand there and laugh Right in its face while shooting it to burn I put upset down in its place I'd squeeze the life out of disgrace Lay over under six cold feet of dirt and hate to love the truth. If I, I could only kill it, I'd knock out temptations teeth. I'd sever evil let it bleed. Light up wicked, stand down, watch it burn. I take and I take vile and tie on the- yellow word.